inescapable that every moment in which we find ourselves these days is yet another one for the history books. The visually hilarious memes about future pupils being shell-shocked by the recounting of our present days, while providing useful levity, fail to encapsulate the immeasurable pain that flows through those who have lost, particularly the loved ones of 19 students and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, whose tragic death shook the world last week. Almost immediately, because of those who fill my feeds, I read, heard, and saw the frustration, anger, and fear consuming so many, and sat in deep reflection about whether to myself weigh in on a heated and already oversaturated conversation. As I often do when a new topic takes control of the headlines for what often feels like a quickly passing eternity, I listened, read, and thought, combining facts with feelings and the life philosophies which guide me in times of turmoil. One such idealistic approach involves the identification of roles which I believe I play in this world. Roles that I work purposely to perfect, or at least to fine tune, and have decided to share a few with you now in hopes that it may, in some small way, make a difference. I'm a writer. Writing comes natural to me, and as brutally solitary a pursuit as it may be, there's nothing more satisfying than leaving a bit of myself on the page and sharing it with the world or at least that infinitesimally small part that takes a moment to read it. I believe in the power of words, the power they have to equally stir thought and action, and thus subsequently to effectuate change. When you couple together the right combination of letters and meanings, you have the undeniable ability to reach the unreachable, and through stories or anecdotes or arguments, help change a mind or heal a wound. Even for those that love it dearly or do it daily, far more often than I do or could, writing is, as Hemingway infamously said, bleeding on a page, and perhaps that is why I so sparingly partake in the endeavor. Yet when triggered through triumph or tragedy, my first inclination is to the written word and those that may be touched by the movement of my digital quill. I write this now in an effort to enhance the discourse, to express in some semblance of order what I believe others cannot as eloquently articulate, and in so doing, play my part in the baby steps of progress. I'm a feeler, a little known attribute that is shared by all those who successfully wield the mighty pen is a depth of emotion that commonly goes unrecognized. That ever-present roller coaster of highs and lows is often drowned out by libations or laughter in a quest to silence the unrelenting muse. I'm no different, and if you are reading this, there is a good chance that a booze-soaked, sappily sentimental message or toast or conversation has been shared between us. My biggest fear is the failure to relay the depth of gratitude I hold for the host of impeccable people that amazingly fill my life, and it's a dread that dominates my days more than I care to admit. As agonizing as the thought of one's own demise may be, no matter how premature, it pales in comparison to the sorrow being suffered by those parents planning funerals for their children. Like everyone, I've lost loved ones in my life, and those losses have, and will forevermore, cut deep in my soul. Yet I cannot fathom the severity of emptiness that losing a young daughter or son leaves. When the pain hits that hard and the depression starts to seep in, it makes many wonder why feel at all. Why not get lost in a fog of intoxication or just protect ourselves from such horrific humiliation by never letting anyone in? That, to me, is to deny the essence of who we are, as feeling is a feature, not a bug, of life. More than a few clients have engaged me in the service of helping them grow their emotional intelligence, 
and upon commencement of the course, almost without fail, I first have to drive home the point that a high EQ does not mean a lack of feeling. In fact, one may say that it enhances emotion, not diminishes it. It's important to understand, I tell them, that to be a better human, you have to embrace your humanity, the good and the bad. I'm a thinker. The countermeasure to those gut-wrenching emotions is the Sherlockian logic bequeathed to me by my father, a tool I use constantly and consistently in efforts to minimize the horrors and maximize the beauty of the world around me. My ever-elusive, yet-to-be-written first full-length work will even bear a title stemming from the slightly analytical mindset with which I approach life, increasing the statistical probability of success and happiness. Following the horrendous events of last Tuesday, one official foolishly noted that the more stringent gun control legislation would not have necessarily prevented the awful attack. While the veracity of this soft statement may be deemed accurate, it blatantly overlooks the mathematical reduction in the likelihood of success had certain preventative regulations been previously enacted. It's not a pleasant thing to hear, but as someone who's visited a number of corners of this great planet and as a middle child, I can assure you that life, at its core, is not fair, and all we can really do are the things that make it slightly more probable that luck breaks in our favor. While health, happiness, and success are virtually impossible to guarantee, we all, individually and collectively, should be doing everything in our power to tip the scales in the direction of positive outcomes. However, measuring and configuring that equation can only be achieved after clarifying certain realities including the distinction between a privilege and a right. That term gets tossed around with relative ease in today's topical debates, with advocates of all shapes claiming that this or that to be a right inherent to existence. Now, call me old-fashioned, though I'm not, but I prefer to harken back to one of the most beautifully crafted documents in history, and an especially poignant one a few days after Memorial Day was celebrated stateside, the Declaration of Independence. The authors therein declared that we are all endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And while the phrasing does not suggest this is a complete list to the exclusion of all others, I prefer to read it that way. We each can pursue our dreams, that which puts a smile on our face. We can do so free of encumbrances and without fear of incarceration, for as long as we are fortunate enough to draw breath. Drinking, driving, voting, privacy, and yes, even the ownership of firearms are privileges that we earn every day by not betraying this trust society bestows upon us. Further, there are times during one's life or during the course of civilization when we must sacrifice some of those privileges for the betterment of the whole. Despite whatever urge I may feel to speed down Main Street inebriated whilst firing my pistol haphazardly into the air during the wee hours of the morning. I cannot. That example, while outrageous, serves to illustrate the concept that we as a group should and must determine that certain behaviors need to be restrained in an effort to move the calculus towards the probability of safety. I'm a conversationalist. Engaging in honest and open discourse in a civilized manner with the aim of reaching conclusions that help all parties, or at least enlighten all those involved in some way, is far from easy. I've done it nearly every day now for over a decade, and I still struggle with it at times. 
My clients span the globe as well as ideologies and many of these fabulous people cling to realities I can barely grasp. Yet it's my job to engage, to listen, and to help in whatever way I've been asked to. In my youth, with an elder sibling whose verbal and intellectual prowess dwarfed my own, I ran away from difficult conversations, from the uncomfortable interactions that I fanatically run towards now in my middle age. As a developing mind, I was easily flustered, cornered, and emotionally reckless with my speech and thought processes. Time and experience have taught me that yelling, belittling, and excoriating those concepts and people I feel to be beneath me closes doors, doesn't open them. And the tighter those seals, the less likely they will ever open again. To me, or whichever verbose world changer follows in my footsteps. If, as I just expounded, my aim is to increase the statistical probability of societal progress, I have to keep that dialogue open and use my emotions, my mind, and my conversations to bring people together, to help everyone to recognize and empathize with all angles of all issues. I may not feel like, it may not feel like it lately, perhaps it seems almost foolish to even openly suggest it, but the world is better now than it ever has been. It is by no means perfect, nor will it ever be, as it is filled with the most wonderfully difficult creations in the history of the universe. Those beings are so stubbornly adamant, so uncontrollably irrational, that the mere suggestion that the belief they hold to be fundamental is not, will result in the ugliest of exchanges. Humanity has tackled a lot of the glaring, glaringly obvious issues, made strides in some of the slightly more complicated ones, but the road is about to get a hell of a lot rockier, and the talk's a hell of a lot tougher. To keep moving forward, each and every one of us must open our minds, hearts, ears, and mouths to communicate wholeheartedly and effectively, even with those whose words make your blood boil. I'm a problem solver. My mornings, afternoons, nights, and weekends are filled with those conversations, sessions of exploration aimed at making the skills and lives of my counterparts a little bit better through diagnosis, deliberation, and delving into whatever shortcomings or issues ail them in that moment. To put it another way, I help people solve problems, playing a small but pivotal part in the process necessary to overcome difficulty. And I do it every day. A friend just this week remarked that I need a day off, a mental health day as he called it, in order to reset, relax, and unwind, get back, get my mind back to the place where it needs to be. My retort was a quip that has found its way into my daily lexicon over the last few years and an idea that burns bright inside of me whenever any issue is brought to my attention. You're treating the symptom, not the disease. I proceeded to inform my youthful and idealistic flatmate that when one needs a break from the daily activities in which he or she engages, it is a re-examination of the routine that needs perusing, not the necessity of longer or more frequent steps away from it. I have, through hard work and deep self-reflection, built an existence from which I do not require an intermission, as I find deep purpose and energetic inspiration in the work that I do. What then, in the events that repeatedly unfold in America, can be labeled as the consequence, and what as the underlying cause? One may, as many have, look at the seemingly illogical statutes surrounding weapons that are more easily obtained in my country than anywhere else on the planet. To be sure, there is work to be done in this arena, and I hope beyond hope that legislation that balances the security of those shopping in supermarkets or learning in schools with the desires of avid hunters or those that feel unsafe can be drafted and adopted in the coming months and years. 
yet I say dig deeper. Is it the lack of identification and treatment as it pertains to mental health issues, particularly with children and those coping with traumatic formidable years? Certainly, society can do more to destigmatize the perceived weakness of those who seek or need help and provide it in a timely and affordable fashion to all citizens. But I urge you to go further. Is it the anxiety and anger-inducing behavior of some young people, the bullying, taunting, and putting down of those that don't fit in for whatever reason, and the lack of inclusion and empathy that pervades today's youth, as it did in my day? Without a doubt, we need to do a better job of instilling the ideals in the leaders of tomorrow at an earlier age and do more to show these innocent actors that actions have consequences and that difference and diversity are beautiful. However, I think we must peel back another layer. The disease whose symptoms we are fighting in nearly every walk of life is the inability to talk to each other. Family members, spouses, siblings, friends, frenemies, flatmates, classmates, colleagues, and even strangers must all interact with one another openly and honestly, no matter how big the differences in views or philosophies may be. There is a chasm that can only be crossed by conversations, and the less we do of it, the wider it grows, as evidenced by the non-existent dialogue in the land of the free. I'm an American. When global attention turns its eye to the self-proclaimed greatest country on earth, my various inboxes are flooded with messages of concern and confusion as the realities and practicalities of American existence can barely be understood by many who do not reside there. Don't let the previous pithy remark fool you. I too hold firm to the belief that while every country has in it both grandeur and grotesqueness, the United States is home to the most potential of any place I have ever had the pleasure of stepping foot in. The rub lies in the dichotomy of existence, that be it a locale or local, one's strength is the source of one's weakness. And the greater that positive force, so too is the amplification of the negative dialed up. In addition to being a writer, I am by nature a speaker, someone that feels at home expounding on his experiences or ideas to any passerby that is willing to listen to the ramblings of a wide-eyed wanderer. As brilliant as my ability to orate may be, that light drowns out an instinct that is equally as precious. Listening. And it's something I have to work tirelessly at to improve. Along the same lines, free speech in the U.S. is fundamental and full-fledged, with people along the entire spectrum able to speak their minds and let loose upon whatever audience they may find the views that fill their hearts. While the importance of free expression cannot be exaggerated, when that power is given to a populace poorly trained in the art of polite discourse, offense will be given and taken with far too much frequency. Perhaps the biggest beauty of that place is the intensity of diversity that fills its shores, the first and still greatest of the world's melting pots with first, second, and third generations of immigrants from literally all walks of life living side by side and forced to commingle peacefully. The bringing together of all those incredible souls leads to creativity, innovation, and tolerance like no other place. However, with such varying origins and perspectives, consensus becomes as elusive as Bigfoot himself, and dissension and segmentation in society seems almost inevitable. 
The 50 regional experiments in governance being carried out across America make it a unique form of democracy. With a limited overarching federal arm and the abilities of states to pass legislation they may deem suitable for their citizenry. While there is much benefit in this structure, such as the, the various places where the growth, sale, and use of marijuana have been legalized, cutting down on crime and increasing government revenues, this form of federalism can often lead to radically conservative, see abortion rights, or radically liberal, see the use of psychedelics, programs looked down upon by outsiders. The American experience, particularly the effective and efficient functioning of its institutions, needs further developing. On that, there is no dispute. But how one can slightly alter structure to greatly affect outcomes, that's the question that lies before us. One small Swiss implementation that could make a dramatic difference is the use of statewide referendums on a more consistent basis to resolve large-scale fundamental debates, leaving it to the people of a particular place to determine regulations regarding voting or drug use or gambling or abortion or guns. Nearly every state that has put cannabis on the ballot for residents to decide has chosen legalization, a choice I endorse, and it begs the question of how all regions would vote if given the opportunity to do so on a broader range of issues. I, for one, would gladly put the questions to my fellow Texans and live with whatever results they decide. I'm a Texan. The old axiom goes that you are what you eat, but after having spent more than 13 years overseas, country hopping with my occupations and vacations, I believe the adage should be altered to reflect a valuable lesson I've learned along the way. You are where you were raised. It's undeniable that my mindset and approach to life have been shaped by the people and places I've come across during the last nearly decade and a half, but the foundation of my mentality was laid a long time ago in the Lone Star State. When confronted with the question of my origin, my answer is a resounding and proud, I'm from Texas. To which the Inquisitor commonly asks, what does that mean? In my mind, to be Texan is to view all those whom you encounter as a friend. That's the default setting when it comes to acquaintances and strangers alike. To see the good and the potential in others and put out your hand as a gesture of kindness, gratitude, and willingness to help in whatever they may need. Recently, a quick clip of a depressingly intelligent and humorous TV show was shared with me in which an older woman is explaining a bit of wisdom to a more middle-aged man who finds himself in hard times. Good people do things for other people. That's it. The end. Immediately upon receipt and viewing, my mind leapt to the hundreds of thousands of Corpus Christians, Dalsites, Houstonians, and others that fill my life and memories, and a conclusion poured out. Texans are good people. When I first departed that dear place all those years ago and found myself walking the streets of the now infamous Wuhan, one item of culture shock shook me more than the other idiosyncrasies of my new home and affected my exploration and enjoyment more than my fellow expats, something that at the time I referred to as a lack of spatial awareness. For more than three years, I noticed the phenomenon across the country, identifying it as an eccentricity which refused to go away. But upon landing in Thailand, then Turkey, then Russia, and a host of traveling hotspots, I came to the conclusion it was neither a Chinese nor East Asian nuance. It was a worldly truth with a deeper subtext than my initial observation. We all, every one of us, get so tightly wrapped up in our own little worlds that we all too commonly fail to notice the beauty of where we are 
and the effects that our actions have on others. It's only natural in a world filled with pre-programmed and intelligently designed distractions that we latch on to a tunnel vision so engrossing that the wonders of everyday existence go unappreciated and the unintended consequence of the words we utter, the steps we take go unacknowledged. The Texan in me will clean up every table I ever sit at, knowing another is soon to follow. We'll talk a little longer to every barista, knowing that the smallest of kind gestures make a world of difference. And we'll look both ways when moving, knowing that this is not just my world, but all of ours. I'm a teacher. The aforementioned cinematic clip begins a few seconds before with one of the simplest yet most astounding revelations I've ever heard. Society grows great when old men plant trees, the shade of which they know they will never sit in. As my eyes and mind lit up upon contemplation of the meaning contained in these words, a single occupation screamed out to me, that of the educator. An all too typically underpaid and underappreciated role, teachers are tasked with the betterment of tomorrow through the enlightenment of today's pupils, regardless of age or situation. Their job, if done correctly, is to encourage curious experimentation, to crack open the most closed of minds and to challenge the ideas and ideals of those put before them, as the classroom is supposed to be anything but a safe space intellectually. I could write a voluminous treatise on the problems with the current education system, the senselessness of debates that rage around it, the ineffectual nature and lack of innovative adaptiveness that pervades it, and the countless thanks owed to current, former, and future teachers for the tireless work they put in day after day and of hopes of making even the smallest of difference. While I've never served in the confines of an American classroom, I have abroad, and I did spend all too many hours on the other side of that desk when I was younger and can safely say that we must make a concerted effort to give these incredible professionals the necessary tools to wage the educational battles they experience daily, to take away all of the outside distractions and concerns and hope that learning will be put forth as the sole objective, that active shooters and fear for their lives and the lives of those whose minds were entrusted to them will be a thing of the past, for the classroom must be a safe space physically. Every ounce of progress we have made as a society and as a species over the last thousands of years all began with a teacher of some kind. And so too will each inch or leap forward that we make from this moment on. So let us now dedicate ourselves to supporting these forgotten saints of civilization and do everything in our power to make their job easier, not more difficult. I'm a coach. I've long been of the opinion that parenting is about preparation, not protection, despite the natural and irresistible urge to the contrary. In some ways, a brutal assault on an elementary school may serve as a solidifier of this instinct, of the dangerous realities of the world in which we live and the innocence of these young people wandering around its jungles. Or it may further illustrate the impossibility of protecting those we love despite every forethought made and action taken in preparation of the unimaginable. My mom still urges me constantly, don't go there, don't do that, be careful. The maternal beast always on guard for her cubs, regardless of age or station. But in an unflinching effort to quell her concerns, I reiterate time and again, I am prepared for whatever life throws in front of me because of the community that helps shape the man I am. Existing in this world, moving through it, resolutely being in search of success, happiness, and meaning, 
are all difficult pursuits which take endless amounts of preparedness, a never-ending process that starts in infancy and continues until one's deathbed. I don't have children. Uh, perhaps I never will. But I am a coach, and I gladly spend the majority of my waking moments helping others to devise strategies and acquire attributes which will serve them when life inevitably pulls the rug from underneath them. I have the absolute privilege of pulling out the best in people that I care deeply for, that help me as much, if not more, as I help them. And I wish more than anything, I could guarantee them success, that I could guarantee them happiness, that I could protect them from the horrors that I know are to follow. But I can't do that. All I can do is get them ready. I still remember vividly a post shared by a dear friend of mine whom I met more than 25 years ago when I first ventured onto the cap campus of the university now forever inscribed on my forearm. He publicly made the declaration that the hope he had in making the world a better place now rested with the men that his three sons would become, that his legacy as a man would not be as an entrepreneur or politician or some other kind of history maker, but as a father, that he would touch the lives of generations to come, not through an invention or the passage of a law, but through the lessons he instilled in the boys who look up to him every day. My mark, my legacy, is the same. It is the daily cuts and scrapes and tweaks and pulls of the minds and dreams and paths of the people that I prepare. And while I may never write that timeless text or snap that historical photo, I know my life will ripple throughout time in the people whose path I have crossed. I'm an optimist. There exists in the field of critical thinking a certain kind of bias, commonly referred to as optimism bias where the individual overestimates the likelihood of positive outcomes and thus incorrectly processes possibilities and probabilities. This particular brand of positive thinking, while more beneficial than its pessimistic counterpart, deludes an individual into a false sense of security that will certainly come crashing down once the harshness of reality reaches his or her doorstep. Urgent optimism, however, as described by American game designer Jay McGonigal, is, is the desire to act immediately, to tackle an obstacle, combined with the belief that we have a reasonable hope for success. I've flatly stated more than once in these pages that life and the world are not fair, a proposition I believe to be irrefutable. Yet equally as true, and also previously mentioned, is the fact that both are, I believe undeniably, progressing. And they are doing so because of the hard work, de dedication, and urgent optimism of millions of people the world over. I could double the length of this prose by merely citing surreal statistics about the progress humanity has managed in recent centuries, and perhaps that is what I should do to hammer home my point a bit harder. But as these nearly 5,000 words were prompted by the demise of innocent children, I will limit myself to a single statistic and a final sentiment before I conclude. Infant mortality, a horrific thing to even imagine, let alone calculate, has decreased across the world by nearly 70% in the last 30 years. I'm an optimist because I know I make a difference. I did today with the lives I touched and the words I shared. I will tomorrow, perhaps in ways I cannot even begin to comprehend. And I urge you to believe without hesitation in yourself and your ability to tackle any obstacle, to bring about any change and to make this world a better place than you found it. Those are just a few of the roles that I play. 
writer, feeler, thinker, conversationalist, problem solver, American, Texan, teacher, coach, and optimist. I have others, and as I mentioned at the outset of this infinitely long diatribe, I work diligently to make sure I play them to the best of my ability. No matter who you are or where you are, you too have roles to play, be it as a parent or friend or mentor or expat or even kind random stranger. But it's up to you to understand your place, how you will perform, and what you will prioritize. As this message will be distributed via serious social media, I close appropriately with a hashtag that powers the eternal flame inside me. Hashtag, be the change.